0: Hey, and welcome back to the latest installment of the Music History Project. Today's episode is about the music retail giant that is Sam Ash. Stay tuned. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale.
1: And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins.
0: All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Recently, you probably hopefully heard the episode we dedicated to former music retail icon Manny's Music. And so we thought we'd kind of keep up the trend. And who better to go to after Manny's other than Sam Ash?
1: That's right. And the institution for sure also owned and operated by the same family. So it's kind of a fun tradition here in the music products industry to have uh, several generations of store owners all being in the same family. And and Sam Ash is a great example of that. So I'm excited that we're going to share their story with you today by those in the family. Uh, we've interviewed several people that have also worked for Sam Ash, but we decided that this uh, this first episode on the company, we thought we would just focus on the family.
0: Yeah, so if you want to see uh, any interviews outside of the Ash family that focus around Sam Ash, one would imagine a great jumping off point would be the website <laughs> and specifically the Sam Ash tag.
2: Yes. That Mike, is the where do they one. go? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> you would go to www.namnam.org slash library. And then you can click on advanced search and search through our, all of our tags. And the one you're probably going to want to look for is Sam Ash. And that will show everyone from the family that dan has interviewed as well as some of the other employees that um, got into the collection awesome
1: well sam ash is a great american story they started off as immigrants and uh, opened a small store in brooklyn 1924 and grew it to several um, hundred stores across the country and they continue to supply musical instruments To all those seeking um, to have music in their homes and in their lives so it's a it's a wonderful story and what's really great is the people behind it are really charming and dedicated and passionate people for which you will hear uh, today so who are we going to be hearing from
0: Ooh, throughout the whole course of the inner of this podcast you're going to be hearing from Paul Ash Jerry and Bernice Ash Sammy. Sammy Ash and Ben Ash. Awesome. So first, uh, kind of the first topic we thought we'd focus on today is the history of Sam Ash music because you can't tell their story without going back to the beginning. Uh, So the first voice you're going to hear from is Paul Ash, part of that second generation. That's
1: right. Just a quick background. Sam Ash, the original um, Sam Ash, was uh, born in Hungary in... um, 1897 and migrated and immigrated to the United States with his family in 1907 and in 1924 uh, just having been married to Rose just a few years uh, or months earlier in that same year they uh, started a small store in Brooklyn and uh, in 1925 their first child Jerry came around and then 29 their second Paul. So two of those uh, we're going to be hearing from today, the second generation um, and Jerry's wife, Bernice, I believe, is also in this first segment. That is true. <laughs> I, don't know, I mean, I don't know.
0: <laughs> So let's uh, Mike, why don't we have Paul start us off with the idea of his father creating Sam Ash. How did this, the,
1: um, the idea of the um, store come about? I understand your mom was involved.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, he was. He had uh, a studio in uh, his mother's apartment. They lived above some store. uh, And uh, he taught the violin, sold accessories, and did repairs. And he also had a day job of being a cutter of fabric in a women's dress factory. He was known as a cutter by trade. That was the common expression. And very good at it. But uh, when he met my mother, they were introduced at a dance that he was playing at uh she suggested that he uh, might be more stable a life if he had a business see her mother had a little can his father my mother's father had a little candy store uh soda fountain it sold candy and cigarettes and so she felt she knew all about business uh, so they found the widow in the, their own brownsville section of brooklyn who was looking to sell her store. And that's the store that they bought. It was a, a corner store, nice nice little place with the apartment behind. And uh, the deal was that she was willing to sell it to them, but she wanted a down payment. She'd let them pay it out. Uh, they didn't have any cash because my father, as a bachelor, was spend his money on clothes. Uh, but he had enough to buy a nice engagement ring f- for my mother. So they pawned the ring, and that was the down payment. Years later, they were able to get, get the ring out of, <laughs> out of pawn, and she got a thing. And they, they, they made the payments. But one of the problems with the, the store when they got it was that it was full of the wind-up phonographs that were so big, the furniture pieces more than anything else. But just then, the radio became popular. And people stopped buying records. There was a number of years where nobody bought any records at all. So he had to get rid of those phonographs. And That was the first thing he did when he took over the store. And from there on, he was kept building the uh, inventory. That's one thing we learned from him. People came in and asked for something. He wrote it down. And then he'd order it. And he built the inventory, both publications and accessories. And uh, musicians all knew him and flocked to him. So the store became a hangout for uh, unemployed musicians. During the, the Great Depression, which was those years, the, the uh, early 30s started in 29, uh, there were many, many unemployed musicians. So they would stay... Uh, outside the store in the nice days, sit on chairs and, and, and gab. And if somebody was looking for a musician, they knew that they could probably find somebody at Sam Ash's store. So they would call and say, is there a trumpet player there? And somebody would come to the phone and get a job. Uh, In fact, the funny thing about it is that the, uh, musicians union, uh, The uh, group that was running it was uh, jealous of what he was doing because he was supporting a friend of his who who had grown up in the same town in Europe as he had uh, to take over and become uh, the new president. So they wanted to do something to hurt him. He he would hire a bus and take all the musicians that were in that area of Brooklyn to vote for an election. So they brought him up on charges at the union, saying that he was operating a uh, copy of the union. He was uh, subverting their efforts. Uh, He had a sign, of course, that said, Musicians Headquarters, over the front door. (laughs) He defended himself by saying, when you go to see an Army and Navy store, it says Army and Navy Headquarters. That doesn't mean it's the Army or the Navy. They dismissed the charges. And years later, uh, Rosenberg, his friend, became the president actually of the union. (laughs) But he wasn't really active in in union affairs. It was a social thing more than anything else for him.
0: All right, so that was Paul Ash talking about the beginnings of the store. And now we're going to hear. few segments from jerry and bernice ash who sat down together for their interview so you're going to hear two voices jerry and then bernice as well um did you want to interject anything about that just to
1: say that so far all of these interviews all three of them were interviewed in 2007 and that uh, paul is the younger brother jerry is the older of the two just to kind of get all that straight
0: Alright, so you're going to hear now uh, Jerry and Bernice talking about when Bernice joined, uh, as well as Jerry's brother Paul's role at the store, and then uh, the two of them are going to be discussing having children and how Sammy got his name.
4: Bernice came to work in uh, 1947, a year before we got married. Uh, We were auditioning her. She worked out, so I married her. (laughs) I didn't even
5: go to my prom.
4: Yeah, uh, <laughs> so, anyway, uh, <laughs> so she came to work and uh, then she worked until 51 when we had our first child and came back to work when our youngest Sam uh, was six. He was born in 57, so she came back in 63. And you
5: know, we had a Sam because we all loved, I in particular loved my father in law very much. He was sweet, kind, funny.
4: Great person.
5: He was a great person to be with. And when he passed away, I said, honey, we have to have another child. Either it'll be a Sam or a Samantha. Fortunately, it was a Sam.
3: Yes.
4: So anyway, so Bernie's came to work. Paul was doing other jobs in the business. He's the busiest guy in the whole chain.
1: I can tell by
4: the stuff on his desk. You <laughs> can't, <he> can't believe it. <laughs>
5: and you kidding. tell him you need this one, he's able to slip it right out. Okay. He knows just <laughs> where it is.
4: So one day he, he decided he was going to take over another job and he said to Bernice, take over the music. Just like that. Take
5: now it. I was working the music counter, but you know, ordering that whole bit, how much, what was a surprise to me, but it worked out. I mean, it was only for, what, two stores?
4: No, at the time we had about five. Five stores. Anyway, uh, she made a huge difference. The the volume of business we do in music now is pretty
2: astounding. So once again, that was Jerry and Bernice Ash. Next up, uh, for our final clip of this section, we are going to hear from Paul Ash again, talking about uh, marketing, promoting the name Sam Ash, and things that his father always did. Now,
1: what was the name of the store?
3: Sam Ash Music.
1: It was always, the very beginning.
3: always Sam Ash, yes. He believed in promoting his name. There's a lot of things that he did that we've never changed. Like, like building the inventory, by, like treating people fairly. Never overcharging. Uh, He would uh, put his name on everything. He had stickers and rubber stamps for the music and for a package. You know, if you buy a bottle of oil, it had a label on, pasted on it, Sam Ash. He put his name on everything, and that's one way of building it. So many people uh, have shown me copies of sheet music that they've bought that had a rubber stamp or a sticker on it that said Sam Ash. He pasted on everything he sold. Smart business. Yeah, and, and no education. It was it was all uh, instinct. He, uh, as I said, he came here when he was 10. He had to learn English. He had to quit school when he was in junior high school so he could work to help support the family. My mother also came from Europe. She came from Russia. He came from Austria uh, at the age of three. Uh, Turns out to have been the same year, but they didn't know each other. Uh, And uh, she graduated from junior high school, but that's as far as she got. She became a bookkeeper. Uh, So the two of them, without any real education, were very astute and spot people, and worked hard, and they they built the business.
0: I think that's a really great clip to end with there, Paul, kind of reflecting on the marketing strategy, because when I listened to it for the first time, I really took from it that this impression that Sam Ash was kind of an innovator in marketing, like slapping his name on everything he could possibly put it on. So that way, just you saw it everywhere you went. You saw Sam Ash, Sam Ash Music, even on the smallest packaging material or...
2: Right. Yeah. And he was really the first to do that. The Really the first to build a brand of a music store. Um,
0: with its own independent like, marketing yeah. outside of like... Well, we carry—I don't know—I'm thinking more of a modern, probably take like, oh, we carry Fender guitars, so here's Fender swag, essentially. Right. Yeah. Like it's Sam Ash. Like you want the Sam Ash T-shirt, you want the Sam Ash stickers, you want the.
2: Right. It's building a brand off their name.
0: Right, which I think is just genius. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't do that though nowadays? Right.
2: Yeah, but back then, nobody was. Nobody was.
0: And does that doesn't it, do you think that that Dan kind of stems off of his position, Sam's position as a musician, and like wanting to market the band that he was definitely, playing in?
1: yeah, I think so. I mean, as a promoter of the band, and you know, he started off as a violin player and and uh, was in a couple of different bands in and around brooklyn he was helping promote that band and getting gigs and so on so i think that it sort of came natural to him to promote the business similarly hey we can do this for you and here's our card kind of thing and um and we find that throughout the music products industry a lot of um Um, Store owners, particularly after World War II, when so many of the soldiers came back and needed a gig and didn't have the traveling big bands anymore, settled down, found a girlfriend, got married, and opened a music store because that's what they knew they could do. And looked at the horn and said, well, if I can't play it professionally, I certainly can sell it and I can teach so a lot of music stores opened up with these guys that knew how to promote themselves because of their experiences as musicians. So I believe Mr. Ash was the same way. And certainly those traits came along to, uh, to his two boys who uh, really promoted the company and grew it. And I think that the story that's unfolding in this podcast is just the importance of the next generation, the second generation of Jerry and and Paul, starting off as kids schlepping stuff all over the place, uh, you know, getting on subways and taking music up to uh, uh, um, music publishing companies and um, really being involved that way. And also the third generation, with uh, Richie and and Sammy and and Dave, um, really working hard to Bringing it up to the next level of you know the, the early days of the internet and things like that, uh, positioning themselves, expanding the stores to several locations. I mean, it was just—it's sort of a uh, a textbook example of what you would do with a multi-generation company. You know, the first sort of establishes it and its customers. The second one branches it out as far as products go. The third figures out more and more ways of staying on top of trends and changing technology. And already the fourth generation is involved in doing their thing, too. So it's really an amazing story and an amazing family.
0: That's probably... Coincidentally, a wonderful way to segue to our second theme of today. Good job, Dan. Thank you.
1: I read ahead. (laughs) Oh, well, don't give it away.
0: Now everybody knows. Man. Um, And so we're going to kind of shift our focus from the history of Sam Ash Music to their expansion, growing from the single shop to uh, the giant, retail giant they are today. Uh, So who are we going to hear from first, Mike? Mike.
2: First, we're going to hear from Paul Ash again, and he is going to talk about Sam's Passing and the expansion of the store.
3: When my father died in 1956, we still had the, uh, the first store. It was the place where we moved in the early 40s. Uh, this was a much better location than the first one. Actually, it was only about eight blocks from the original location, but it had a subway, it had three bus lines, trolley lines, and... Uh, people were able to find it and a lot of traffic. So, uh, so it was a busy store, but it was just the one store. My brother and I got the idea that we should have a second store. He didn't like the idea. He felt the family should stay together. His dream was someday we might have a big building with a separate floor for each instrument, sort of like uh, G. Sherma had for a while. It were lines in and New Orleans had it uh but it never came to pass. We actually uh, looked on Long Island for another place, but he said no. Let's not do it. He's a little cautious. So, uh, 3 years after he died, we moved the store down the block to a corner store and immediately the business grew tremendously. That Uh, Business flourished, and then Jerry and I decided that we'll finally do that Long Island thing that we were talking about, and we opened a store in Hempstead, and uh, my mother went along uh, and looked at it, and she approved. It was next to a department store, A&S, which was at the time the largest suburban department store in the U.S. It was just the next block, and we immediately did well. My mother kept asking the landlord, is it possible, when we first looked at it, to build a second story in case we ever need it? <laughs> it's amazing how she, <laughs> What actually what happened was, the, through the years, we, we took over the store to the right, then we took over the store to the left, and eventually another four stores. <laughs> <laughs> we spread out. <laughs> so she had the right idea that we could do that. Yeah. So uh, she saw that happen. And three years after that, uh, we were working seven days a week, uh, Jerry and I. And finally, there was one Sunday where I didn't have to work. I, I went to, to Jerry Bernice's house uh, for dinner, and we sat and talked to him. And before we knew it, we were talking about opening another store. <laughs> and that one became uh, Huntington Station, which was further out on the island. I, I each move I, I, we were making in those days, I would uh, check the zip codes of the people that bought from us to figure out where they were coming from. Uh, that's why we, we moved to the direction of Long Island because we were in Brooklyn, being finally being Brooklyn's largest store. But there was nothing much going eastward, Queens or Long Island. and so. I saw that so many addresses were from people from Long Island that we felt that that was where we had to go. And then when we were in Hempstead which is Nassau County, I saw so many people coming from Suffolk County that we felt that that needed a store for itself. And that worked out very well. And through the years after that we were adding another store every few maybe 3 years. We were a little, little cautious about it, but we we were confident, but we didn't want to go overboard and open too many at once. And almost every time I would tell my mother what we were doing and that we had a, a store lined up, she wanted to know if there was any nice places to have lunch in the area. <laughs> she was always worried about it. <laughs> and she worked as uh, through her years. Uh, she lived to the, to the mid-'80s. She worked in the store until she uh, finally got Parkinson's and had to quit. But she she kept working there at the register, a very keen person who could tell us within a few days whether a new hire was going to make it or not. She she could uh, judge that and uh, kept a good eye on things.
0: All right. So that was Paul. And now we're going to shift over to Jerry in a 2017 interview, a follow up that Dan did with Jerry. And he's going to be discussing uh, what it was like opening a location next door to Manny's.
4: When we came into Manhattan, we had one small store next to Manny's. Manny's was a le- Leviathan. He was, everybody in the country knew who Manny's was. And we had a store that was 17 feet wide by 100 feet long, and we were trying to compete. And what happened was uh, there were about 14, 15 stores on the block. There were no really good businessmen among them. They all had gotten a bonanza because uh, some years before the All of them were clustered on 48th Street near Sixth Avenue. Then uh, the Rockefeller people bought up all that territory to um, build some more uh, buildings of Rockefeller Center. So they all got big money to move. So maybe that made them lazy, I don't know. A couple of them just took the money and ran. A lot of the others opened stores, and after two, three, five, six years, they started to close. And everyone that closed, we took over. Paul wouldn't allow any store that became empty to not become one of our (laughs) stores. So at the end, we were just us and about five or six different storefronts. Plus Rudy's. And (laughs) so those those are good years.
0: All right. So that was Jerry Ash from his 2017 interview. And now we're going to have a new voice. And that's Sammy Ash, the third generation. Ooh, Mm -hmm. I'm having a hard time even keeping it straight. (laughs) The third generation. This is Sam, the original founder's grandson. Right. And Sammy is now president of Sam
2: Ash.
0: Good call. It was either that or CEO, and it's just remembering what they call themselves.
1: And this might be a great chance to just say a little shout out to Sammy. He has been absolutely aces with us here in the Resource Center at NAMM, helping us with all kinds of projects. He's been uh, dedicated with the Oral History Project. He's helped us with interviews with some of the uh, key folks uh, in and around music retailing in New York and beyond and I just really want to make sure that we get it said out there that uh, he's just really been a great great help to us.
0: So with that being said here's Sammy discussing uh, their competition with Manny's when they opened that location but also on the flip side of the coin remaining best friends with the Goldrich family.
6: Our biggest competition at one time was Manny's and it was always this weird thing because They literally dominated us at the time, and they were our biggest, biggest competition and pain in the butt. But my father and Henry Goldrich were best friends. So, like, people would see the two of them together at dinner and go, what's going on here? You know, so there was a lot of
2: things like that. So once again, that was Sammy Ash. And next, we're going to hear from Paul talking about The purchase of Manny's.
3: The Manny's family is still the uh, landlord's. We don't own any any of the properties. The Wolf family still owns the 160. They own that one. Alex owns the building that, that we took over from him. And all the other pieces are owned by the Rockefellers. And someday we can see it happening they'll take over the rest of that block and put up some tall buildings there because there are so many successful tall buildings in that area. And these last last few will have to go by the wayside.
1: So that was uh, Paul Ash, and I just wanted to mention that uh, uh, Paul was born in 1929, uh, passed away in 2014, and really is sincerely missed uh, by all members of the staff and family. Uh, He was a real sort of quintessential manager. Um, I remember walking to his office and just seeing piles and piles of papers on his desk, next to his desk, everywhere. And if he needed something, he knew exactly where to go to get it. Uh, Just a remarkable guy and uh, very much beloved and and missed. Uh, And so it's great to have his voice, to hear him uh, talking about what he was most passionate about.
0: As Dan mentioned earlier, one of the roles in uh, the third generation there, especially Sammy, has been the expansion. And Sammy has really seemed to gravitate towards that niche. Like that's his baby. Absolutely. uh, Traveling the country and working to make sure each location launches perfectly. It's designed well, uh, it's marketed well, it's stocked well. Like He's really got the formula down.
1: The, f- the uh, Another big, big part of it, of course, is the training and the incorporation of each individual employee as being part of the family. It's very important to Sammy, and he does an excellent job with that.
0: Yeah, so we're going to hear uh, Sammy break down kind of how he came into this role and what he does and how the formula works for him so here he is.
6: It was essentially was my father and uncle finding locations and then it was more of my uncle's job building the stores. Uh, Sometime around 20 years ago it became my job. I'm the one who with my brother's brought the company to where it is. I built the last, well, I either built, converted or changed the last 35 stores. Some of those, for example, we took over a number of Mars stores. So, I was on the road and I was recruiting the people and converting it. I built all the stores that we built from scratch. You know, we we have rather large locations. Our average store is about 25,000 square feet. So, I work with the architect in terms of making it legal and design and all that, but most of the scoping out of locations and all were done by myself or my brothers, and we'd say, all right, where do we want to go? Um, When uh, we got wind of our West Coast competitor coming to the East Coast, we said, you know what? Let's go to the West Coast. We used to have this unspoken agreement. You stay on your side of the country, we'll stay on ours. As soon as somebody crossed over, we said, all bets are off. So we grew a lot by opportunity. When uh, the Thoroughbred Company went under, we took over their stores. A couple of them we had to move, but for the most part, they were really good, well-designed stores. Uh, when Music to the Max went under, we took over that store. That was our first California location. Um, then uh, when the Mars Company went under, we took nine of their top 11. And, But a lot of the stores, all the stores in Chicago, most of the stores in Florida, um, All of those are are basically, we build from scratch, Atlanta, we build from scratch, and all these. When I say we build from scratch, we don't build. We gut and make it into a music store. And they're a little bit different than anything else that's out there because we are a full line store. Not pianos, but you brass winds, sheet music is a component which many other dealers don't do. We're not a rock shop. We're a music store. Uh, It's like we like to say, cradle to grave. But my father is responsible for knowing the talent, the eyes, of the key people to run this company with us. And basically hand-selected, not knowing at the time, all these various guys to help grow this business.
2: Moving on to our last segment in this section, we are going to hear from Ben Ash. Actually, is this the first time we've heard from Ben Ash? Yeah. Dan, did you want to say anything about Ben? Fourth generation. (laughs) That's kind (laughs) of amazing.
0: Sammy's son, right? Yes.
2: Yes. So Ben is going to be talking about the 48th Street store moving to 34th Street.
1: So can you tell me about the um, 48th Street store? We keep hearing about changes going on there and so on.
7: Yeah, it's. I went there for the last time on Tuesday, and it's weird. That's the only way to put it, because this is an institution that's been there. Granted, it's Manny's first, but the entire street of Music Row, people as far as Stevie Wonder, Justin Bieber, think of what you want of him, the fact that he steps into a Sam Ash and wants to mess around with the keyboards is cool by me. And tons of artists have come into both the Manny's and Sam Ash location, whether just to mess around, get something for a gig, but the fact that we've had so much of an impact on New York City's legacy of a whole. We're there with the Empire State Building, I would think, and and the Flatiron Building. We are Music Row. We are the place that you would go if you needed your first guitar or, your, or just as simple as getting a new cable. And the fact that we're moving is a bit bittersweet because we're moving to expand, which is great, but we're, it's like you were raised in a house and you're finally moving. So you have so many memories there, but you're moving because of something hopefully good. In this case, this is wonderful. We're on 34th Street. There's a movie called Miracle on 34th Street. I'd like to think we're now that miracle, that we can all be under one building and be next to Macy's and be there when the Thanksgiving Day Parade happens. And it's a very cool thing to know that we're that important, that it's big news, that it's a people ask about, hey, how's the move going? you guys are going to 34th Street you guys and in Manhattan the idea of going from one place in Manhattan to another because you need it and it's important and it's because you're getting bigger is it's not like you're in Kansas and you have to move because you're growing bigger it's New York City there's not that much real estate to begin with and the fact that we found it and it's reasonable and it's to the one of the greatest streets in the entire world let alone New York that We could be a part of that and maybe even reach a huger audience. Because while someone's wife might be going into Macy's to get a new pocketbook or a dress, her husband can go, that's fine honey, I'm just going to go over to Sam Ash next door and you can find me in there wailing on something. So I think we're going to not only reach a different area of Manhattan, but just a different demographic. There are going to be people, I feel, coming into there that may not have thought of being a musician, and just seeing a cool display and going, I need to see what this is about. Because while Music Row is a little bit hidden, it was kind of the cool kids club, you had to know about it to be there, 34th Street is just oblivious, what am I saying, is obvious, it's right there. There's gonna be one kid who's wearing his uh, LeBron James jersey, sports fanatic, looking at a guitar and going, Something tells me I have something besides sports in mind and go figure maybe even being just a and to one day even be a staple of New York City be something important to the entire music populace in uh, New York City.
0: All right. So that wraps up our second theme of this podcast on Sam Ash Music, which has to do with the expansion of the store. And now we're going to kind of shift gears and talk about sales philosophies. That is a huge theme as you talk to every member of the Ash family is the importance on sales, having integrity, right. um, being good to your employees, being good to your customers. Uh, and they attribute that to their success.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So
0: we're going to hear two clips uh, from Jerry and Bernice, so it's going to be pretty exciting. And uh, I love their rapport and their back and forth with each other, so I hope you guys get a kick out of it too.
4: Well, we had no credit because we, it was a hard job for us to pay bills. My father would give me a handful of bills, usually singles, maybe a few fives or a ten. I'd stuff my pocket. The subway at the time, I think, was a nickel or a dime. And I would go and to various places, get the music and- Did he give little... you an
5: order or you no, just assumed? No, had
4: orders. Oh, you had orders. He gave me orders to take. I'd wait while they filled the orders. I'd go to the Shermer place, to Fisher, to the Brill Building and pick up the music.
5: Who was the jobber?
4: Kane, Walter Kane. Walter Kane. We got a lot of stuff from him, but we bought direct from Shermer and Fisher and Belwyn. I would go to all their Places. It's much easier uh, get now. Get a piece of rope, get it all together, and go back on the subway. Uh, we were quite, quite poor. The, uh, my mother would wait in the morning till we took in a few bucks and then go to the grocer.
5: He was poor, but compared to him, what was I?
4: <laughs> she was getting care packages from Africa. I think. <laughs>
1: No kidding.
5: The only reason the only reason we we went together was that I lived a block and a half away from the store. So it was convenient. He left the store at ten o'clock and he can go meet me for soda in five minutes.
1: It seemed
4: to work out though. I don't
1: know. Yeah, it seemed to. What was it like before the computer? Notepad? <laughs>
4: It was murder before the
5: computer. Before the, are you talking about folders? Yeah. Every sheet had a folder. And when you sold the sheet, you sent me the folder. And I'd get a little bundle of folders every week, every week or so. And we'd order from the folder. And then it would come to my office we'd fill out all the folders and send it to the stores. that you know how long it
4: took? It took You're out of stuff as much as you were in it.
5: Hmm. Now you place an order, it goes directly to the store. Hmm. That's all. And the companies are very good. I mean, I can give them an order for $10,000. I can give them an order for $100. They'll send it to the the store anyway. Hmm.
1: Yeah,
4: that's amazing. They're quite accurate. They're quite good in what they do.
5: Oh, they're, no, no. They're,
4: they're really professional companies, what's left in the business. No,
5: I was talking about Thompson. The first
4: Yeah.
5: is now owned by Hal Leonard. <laughs> but that really makes it much, much easier because they accept a mixed order. Mm. You can have an order with Willis in it and uh, Hal Leonard. They have shut, they have far all together under one roof. That makes it much easier. Sherma? Well,
4: Sherma. Also part of Hal Leonard.
5: Uh, I think music sales bought Sherma, but Hal Leonard has the print rights.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's another aspect. Some of them have print rights. And, you know two other pieces right
5: yeah I think I the most confused. beautiful <laughs> thing today is Sherma is putting their library in with a CD so you can buy the Sonatina album with the CD so you can use it as a duet or you can hear it first and then know what you're playing mm-hmm. I you helps
2: know, you with the phrasing if nothing else really
5: sure. is and They're doing, but Alfred is doing the same thing.
2: So once again, that was Jerry and Bernice Ash. And next we're gonna hear from Sammy again. Um, We got two clips from him. The first one's gonna be talking about uh, basically the formula for a Sam Ash store. And then he's gonna be talking about his design for the store and tips and tricks he has to make each store successful.
6: The formula for the Sam Ash outline (laughs) is the fact that I'm a genius in stealing the good ideas (laughs) and not, and not the bad ones. I learned from every retailer that's out there. Many of them have learned from us. I mean, we were the first person that I ever saw that used slat wall to display products on. That was my uncle's. I mean, when the fir- I never heard of slat wall until he actually said, We're going to put slat wall on these walls. You know, I, I learned from my competition, I learned from major retailers. There's a lot, if you want to open your eyes to what's going on in this world, there's a lot to learn. We constantly are changing our stores. We are constantly upgrading our stores. Um, You know, you, you you don't think about things like carpeting. But when you have the kind of traffic that we have, if you're lucky, you get seven years out of carpet. Okay, it's carpet, big deal. Well, it's $50,000 to change over a store's carpeting, you know? I could spend a quarter of a million dollars in a year because I have several stores where just the carpet has been worn through. And we have pride. We don't have shabby stores. We don't have old, disgusting showcases. We don't have outdated uh, hooks and hangers. We will upgrade things. And I'll work with companies like String Swing who... I have, have very creative ideas on displaying product and the guys over at command and I, I look at what other people are doing. I go to a NAM show. I'll I'll steal ideas from a NAM show. I'm you know. But what I what I'm also very proud of is when I walk into another music store, because I am a student of the music store, I go to every music store in every town that I have time, even on vacation, it drives my wife crazy. <laughs> but You know, I want to see what's going on and what I like is every once in a while I see one of my ideas on their wall and I go, hmm, that feels good. So uh, yeah, and that's how you learn. I I, I learn from virtually any kind of retailer that's out there and if they've got a good idea and I can apply it to my company, then I will, shamelessly. I'm willing to experiment. I'm willing to try things. I listen to my people. We change our displays according to the times. You know, when we had way too many instruments on the walls, I had to figure out different ways of using hooks. When we had way too few instruments on the walls, I had to get creative with posters and things and make it look like there's a lot of instruments when there aren't. So you learn a lot. You learn a lot, you know, I go to, like I said before, I go to my competition, see what they're doing. Why do they do this and not that? What kind of security devices are they using or aren't they using? You know, how, where is the manager's office? Is it at the front of the store? Is it in the back of the store where they can't see what's going on? Is it a store that needs a camera system or not? So, we're still learning. I'm still messing around with
1: So those in retail have a really great formula there. I mean, it's amazing to listen to him outline just exactly um, what he puts into each location. Uh, again, that was Sammy Ash talking about the expansion of his stores throughout the United States. And again, I just really think it's a wonderful insight. He's really uh, articulate and I think that really shows part of the passion that he has uh, as well as the um, managerial and business skills he's developed over the years
0: and it seems like I mean never I've had the pleasure of meeting him myself I got the vibe from his interview that he's the kind of guy when he when you meet him you like him like it's hard right. to dislike mm-hmm. him yeah, yeah because yeah, no he's personable he's funny he's like charming he's intelligent he's passionate and he he he's compassionate too yeah. and yeah, that comes yeah. off absolutely. very quickly. And that's
2: probably what makes him an absolutely amazing salesman too. Yeah. Right. Cuz he, he connects can, with you. Yeah, right. You yeah. think he's your I mean he is your friend. Right. Cuz he's such a good guy. So. Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah, and he wants the best, right? Know? And that's, that's, that's I think that, that that's comes what, across,
2: right? And I think that's what leads to the most successful stores is not when they're trying to, you know, pick on their customers and force them to buy certain things, but to really actually help them and get them what they want.
0: And I think that's why you can't ever fault the Sam Ash, you know like conglomerate almost mm-hmm. that they have across the nation now is because they're doing the right thing they're right. putting instruments in the hands of players they're promoting music uh, across the board and they're nice people it's, right it's yeah. they're not which they're is not, why this is a fun story right. to tell right. absolutely yeah it's not what i think people would imagine from the surface of it you know And so i think that's really great all right, so wrapping up this section, we're going to hear from Jerry Ash in his 2017 interview, and it's a philosophy that uh, he and the rest of the family kind of live by, and I'll just let him tell the story because I think it's great.
4: Another thing we found, if you don't show it, it doesn't matter if you have it or not. I used to come with this with this uh, story. I said, did anybody ask you if you sell, a f- sell Ford's? He said, no, why shouldn't they? I said, it's because you're not displaying any Fords. With a musical instrument, if you don't show it, you don't have it. So um, all our stores are famous for putting out a lot of stuff. And uh, we try to be flexible. We try to, if something comes out, you try it. If it doesn't work, so you'll some money. If it works, you got something which can gather tremendous momentum. And momentum is the thing in any industry, in any business. So we, the guys know what I like, but they don't, they're not beholden to me. They don't come to me, should I do this, should I do that? That's past. They run the business, and I'm there to enjoy
1: it. Mm-hmm. Jerry, do you think the uh, customer is much different than it was when you first started?
4: It's, they're much more knowledgeable, for one thing. They got the internet. They know everything, and they know every price. So. Uh, it's it's not easy it was easy for a few years and at the height of the rock and roll craze uh, (laughs) we were cleaning up it was really unbelievable but uh, you know that's uh, past but these things are cyclical Uh, I grew up in the big band era after that It was the era of the crooner. And then, fortunately, rock hit.
0: All right. So that was Jerry kind of putting out the sentiment that if you don't put it up on the wall for display, you ain't going to sell it. (laughs) Which I think is very basic, but often forgot about. That's right.
1: You got to get back to
2: basics. No doubt. That's great.
0: Mike, what topic are we going to next?
2: Our next section is all about the employees. Oh, boy. A big part of Sam Ash, because one part is the customer and how you treat the customer but the other is the employee. That's right. right? Because if you don't treat them well then they're probably not going to want to sell for you. Yeah, or stick around, right? <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs>
0: People don't usually stay at jobs they don't like, so. <laughs> um, and like Dan said, we have a quite a few other interviews from Sam Ash employees in our collection, which just shows their commitment to the company and to the family.
1: That's right. Some of them have been there 30 years, oh, 34, wow. 40 years. It's amazing. And you think also the, uh, the store in, uh, 2019 will celebrate its, uh, 95th anniversary. I mean, that's pretty amazing. So they've had all these years as a family to kind of get it right. As far as the employee manual and the training, um, which is also very very important to them and just that connection that they have with individuals that they want to bring in on as team members.
0: So we're going to hear in our first section Sammy talking about his father Jerry's ability to hire excellent employees and he provides some examples.
6: We have a guy named Barry Horowitz who was working with us. He was long-haired pedal steel playing hippie looking guy, out in the Huntington store. But my father saw his talent and, and uh, understood that he understood. And started to groom him. Barry has been with us pushing 40 years. And he's the head of purchasing. Howie Mendelssohn is our executive vice president of stores. And he started out cleaning out the front windows of the Hempstead store. My father saw something in him. Uh, Scott Goodman, Uh, for the record, we own Samson Technologies. Scott Goodman, who is the CEO of Samson Technologies, was one of those guys that my father saw selling drum heads and sticks behind the counter of of this store, because he was a percussionist. And through various conversations, once again, my father got it and saw that he gets it. And when it came to coming up with this concept that if you made a wireless system cheap enough and good enough, people will beat a path to your door. Well, since that time, Samson has really grown. And uh, it's Scott's vision to where it is with us, but we as a family were doing certain things, taking that eye off the ball, and Scott kept on putting the eye back on the ball and saying, no, no, don't, we, we're not in the drum throne business. Get out of that. We're, you know, we, this is what we do. We're wireless, we're audio. A- and a tremendous amount of other people, a lot of our managers have been with us for a very long time. Most of them also, a lot of them were picked or recognized by my father. So I grew up with a bunch of guys that, we, ha- we travel the country together, we laugh together, we know each other implicitly, we finish each other's sentences, and uh, I hope I'm gonna do it with them for many years to come. As a matter of fact, we were just having the conversation of, you know, we've been doing this what we're doing for the past twenty years who's going to take over our job? We're getting to become old guys.
0: All right. so that was Sammy and now we're going to jump over to Jerry Ash in his 2017 interview talking about uh, his appreciation and the company's uh, efforts to appreciate their employees.
4: Well among other things we learned to appreciate the people who work for us. They weren't just peons. Uh, You uh, read today about uh, businesses which try to have as few people as possible pay as little money as possible we have a, a system where you do better you make more and we like our people i like to just kibitz with them talk with them and it's a fun Maybe I'm old and decrepit looking, but when I come to the front door normally, somebody runs and grabs the door for me. I can still open a door. So apparently they're happy. They like what what they're doing and they like being with us. But we generally, I should say genuinely appreciate them. And it's just, It's just nice. It's a
1: family. Yeah, that was Jerry Ash in uh, 2017. And, you know, listening to uh, Sammy and and Jerry, you know, some of this is kind of basic stuff, but it's amazing how we forget about it. And I know that as uh, things change in business and we have more challenges and different obstacles that face us, sometimes the basic stuff is lost. And it's really neat. To, uh, to see that the, the Ash family has always had a strong focus on the employee, the training, and the development, and looking for opportunities for their employees to grow over the years, which is very important to them. So next, we're going to hear a little bit more on that uh, with the interview going back uh, to uh, 20, I think it's, is it 07 uh, with Jerry and Bernice? We try to treat
4: everybody as... Somebody we like, if they work for us or if they sell to us. And we've made so many friends. When I go to NAM, it never has happened that less than six, eight people have come up to me. You know, I got my start with you. Some I remember.
5: I some my I don't. With
4: you. No, I mean. Uh,
5: yeah, no, or, uh, or you're, Do you remember when I worked in Paramus? And
4: I'll never forget what you told me or something like that. I get this quite often. And it's so rewarding to get something like that. Mm -hmm. Because this is an industry populated by nice people. And it's such a joy to be with them.
5: One, it touched me very much. Um, And we had an employee who was working in New Jersey before that in uh, Hempstead and one Christmas, he sent us a Christmas card saying, the one thing I miss is my Christmas card from Jerry. Every Christmas, Jerry would sit night after night, personally writing out the cards, filling them with money, and then handing them to but the But in those
4: days, uh, I knew everybody. We had about 400 employees. I knew them, and I knew about their families, and every card was a personal card. It was not a a rote card for everybody. Each one was different. But I can't do that anymore. I don't know most of the people. I don't get out into the stores the way I used to, so I can't do it. But it was a, a hard job, but it was... Nice to do, I loved loved giving out the cards, shaking hands or Mm -hmm. giving somebody a hug.
5: One thing I know, our employees know, we care for them. Mm. We we do things to make their lives easier.
4: If there's anybody with a complaint, they'll get Paul on the phone. I used to do that. And uh, he'll make it right wherever it's possible
0: all right so what better way to end a podcast uh about sam ash music than with a section about customer service because they truly pride themselves on their customer service and their ability to make sure that everybody leaves happy so our first segment is going to be from paul ash and he's going to be talking about just the importance of it
1: i think your your brother is the one who said it but in in an article in one of the music trades way long long ago, before it was the catchphrase, is the customer service aspect of the business. Absolutely. Can you talked to me a little bit, you mentioned it earlier, but tell me a little bit about that. Uh,
3: absolutely. That. Well, we, we learned that we learned that from my parents, they treat everybody nice, treat everybody fairly, and give them attention. And uh, I remember the, the years when uh, the, the music teachers would come to the store with a list of what they wanted. And we'd run around uh, three bottles of valve oil, this one straight, mute, whatever it was. We'd do whatever we had to do to to please them.
2: So our final clip of this episode, all about the Sam Ash music store company, is going to be from Jerry Ash's 2017 interview. And he is going to be talking about the key to maintaining integrity. And he just, wraps everything up perfectly so let's hear from Jerry
1: what do you think is the key to the reputation and the integrity
4: it started back with my parents Uh, we lived behind the store so my parents were always there and (laughs) my father made a friend if you if you came in twice you were a friend came in a third time you had a nickname
0: All right, so there it is. All we can say in about an hour plus about Sam Ash Music Store Company. (laughs) 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 LLC. We were ripping on Dan, or not Dan, we were ripping on Mike earlier. I'm sure he's going to cut it out though. No, but thank you guys for joining us again and sticking with us uh, for the last year plus. It's been a lot of fun recording and we're going to see you guys in two weeks. We're really excited for the next one.
1: Just another shout out to uh, all the Ashes. They've always been so grateful and gracious, I should say, to, uh, to help us. We've used their um, studio several times for interviews and um, they've always uh, supported us. So I just want to say a special thanks to all of them and, uh, and to the team here. It's great to take a few minutes to pay attention to the retail side of the music business. And I'm glad that we had this opportunity to document the Sam Ash story. Thanks for
2: listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.